that he put on the claim form for the cause was that he lost presence of mind. And because of the size of the claim, the insurance company requested uh, more information, uh, more details. And the man gave the following response. He wrote, to whom it may may be concerned, I am writing in response to your request for additional information with reference to my accident where I put lost presence of mind as the cause. You asked for a fuller explanation, and I trust the following details will be sufficient. I am a bricklayer by trade, and on the day of the accident, I was working on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I found I had some bricks left over, which, when weighed later, were found to be 550 pounds. Rather than carry the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel by using a pulley which was attached to the side of the building at the sixth floor. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the bricks into it. Then I went down and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 550 pounds of bricks. You will note in block number 11 of the reporting form that I weigh 135 pounds. Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel, which was now proceeding downward at an equally impressive speed. This explains the fractured skull and broken collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley, which I mentioned in paragraph two of this correspondence. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of the excruciating pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Now devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel only weighed 50 pounds. I refer refer you again to my weight. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for the two fractured ankles, broken tooth, and severe lacerations of my legs and lower body. But here my luck began to change slightly. The encounter with the barrel seemed to slow me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell into the pile of bricks, and fortunately only three vertebrae were cracked. I am sorry to report, however, as I lay there on the pile of bricks in pain, unable to move, and watching the empty barrel six stories above me, I again lost my composure and presence of mind and let go of the rope. The empty 50-pound barrel, weighing more than the rope I had let go, fell rapidly to earth, resulting in the two broken forearms and wrists when I raised my arms to protect myself. I hope this information satisfactorily fulfills your request for further information. And the point of all that is to make this statement that sometimes we don't let go of things that we should, and in the end it causes us great harm. Have you ever held on to something that you should have let go of, that you just couldn't let go of for some reason, and at some point in time it came back to haunt you? Have you ever held on to a relationship you should have let go of? Have you ever held on to a behavior you should have let go of? Have you ever held on to an attitude that you should have let go of? Have you ever held on to a thought that you should have let go of? I'm certain all of us have something that we should have let go, and yet we failed to do it. 
And this morning, I want to share with you what the Bible has to say about two things we should let go of. Two things that many of us have a tendency to hold on to. And I want to start with this one, and that is guilt. We must let go of our guilt. Now, don't get me wrong, guilt has a good purpose. The purpose of guilt is to help us understand when we've done wrong. When God created mankind, he didn't just create us with the freedom of choice. He also created us with something called a conscience. He created us with this ability to feel shame and remorse when we sin, when we choose incorrectly. Our conscience is a gift from God that helps us understand when we've done wrong. And that conscience was triggered in Adam and Eve as soon as they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You may recall, according to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25, prior to that sin, Adam and Eve were both naked and were not ashamed. In other words, they existed in a state of complete innocence because they had not yet done anything wrong to make them experience guilt. But then they ate the forbidden fruit. And if you turn over to Genesis chapter 3 and you look at verse 7 and 8, we're told that the eyes of both of them were open. In other words, they were exposed to the difference between good and evil, right and wrong, after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they instantly knew that they had done something wrong, and that is evident based on the fact that they began a cover-up operation to hide their guilt. We're told that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths in order to hide their nakedness, and we're, to we're told that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. All of that was an apparent effort to prevent him from seeing them. And what we discover in the aftermath of the first sin is that guilt is necessary in order for us to recognize sin. Without guilt, there is no awareness of wrongdoing. So there is no possibility of repentance that is necessary in order for us to receive forgiveness. And so this idea of guilt, guilt is a corrective measure. Guilt exists for the purpose of helping us autocorrect. Corrective guilt is God's tool for leading mankind to the recognition of sin and down the path to forgiveness. In fact, you can turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 and 11, and you can see this type of guilt at work when Paul writes to that church and he says, Now I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief, this is where guilt comes in. This is another way of re referencing guilt. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. Why? Because they had corrective guilt. 
They allowed guilt to fulfill its function and expose their wrong. But guilt has the ability to be crippling rather than corrective at times. That's because we have a tendency to associate our liability, what we did, with our identity, who we are. What I mean is that we are very good at defining people based on their biggest mistakes. Let me show you how we do this when it comes to some biblical characters. She's not remembered as the woman whom Jesus forgave. She's remembered as the woman caught in adultery. Her identity has been attached to her liability. Her identity has been attached to her mistake, to her sin, instead of her salvation. And he's not remembered as the son who came home. He's remembered as the prodigal son. You know what prodigal means? It means wasteful. So he's not remembered as the one who turned his life around and came back to his house. He's remembered as the guy who went away and wasted everything he had. And he's not remembered as the apostle who was prepared to die with Jesus, which he proclaimed in John chapter 11 and verse 16. No, he's remembered as doubting Thomas based on his declaration in John chapter 20 and verse 25 that he would not believe that Jesus rose from the dead unless he saw the wounds for himself. We emphasize that single moment in his life and ignore the rest. And he gets labeled with that title. Because all too often, we look at people and identify them based on their worst moment. And we don't just do this to other people. Sometimes we do it to ourselves. And what ends up happening is is your lie or your addiction or your divorce or your abuse or your adultery or your internet search history or those words you said in the heat of the moment or that one bad decision becomes your identity It becomes what you see when you look in the mirror. And that guilt is good as long as it's correcting you and leading you to repentance. But after you've repented and you still hang on to that guilt, it becomes crippling. See, the Bible is filled with heroes who possessed some serious skeletons in the closet, but the Bible doesn't remember them for what they did. The Bible always focuses on the identity that they found in God. So, for example, Abraham was a liar, but he's remembered as the father of many nations in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 4. Moses was a murderer, but he's remembered as a prophet like no other in Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse 10. And David was an adulterer, But he's remembered as a man after God's own heart in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. All of those individuals 
found forgiveness and a new identity in God. In order to let go of our guilt, we must turn our wrongs over to our God. The one thing we need to understand about him is that he is not a record keeper. He is a record remover. When it comes to our mistakes, when it comes to our wrongs, when it comes to our sins and our trespasses, we have a great memory and a bad forgettery. I know that's not a word, but guess what? You're going to remember it. But when it comes to God, He intentionally has a poor memory and a great forgettery. See, you can turn over to Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 25, and there God declares of himself, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Because of what his son did at Calvary, God has the ability to delete all of your sins from his memory. In fact, David expounds on God's ability to forgive and forget our sins in Psalm chapter 103 and verse 12 when he says that God removes our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. That is one of the most powerful metaphors in the entire Bible. Because here's the thing, if you start traveling north at some point in time, you will start traveling south. You can only go north so far until you start traveling south. But if you start traveling east, there will never be a moment you start traveling west. And so what that tells us about God and his forgiveness is that it's permanent And it's infinite. Our God's ability to forgive and forget are far greater than our ability. And once your sins have been dealt with, if God's not holding on to them, why should you? See, by refusing to forgive ourselves, we are ultimately ignoring God's promise to not only forgive our sins, but to also forget them. And what God forgets, God wants to let go of. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, we're told that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. Far too many of us aren't letting the old pass and the new come. We must let go of our guilt once our sins have been dealt with by the blood of Jesus. But for others of us, the issue is not our guilt. One preacher pointed out that some people let their wrongs become their prison while other people let their wounds. And his point is that every one of us has done the Father wrong and every one of us has been done wrong by a brother. And that leads to the other thing we need to let go of. We need to let go of our grudges. While the Father 
forgives and forgets. Sometimes we don't. When we hold on to a wrong, we give ourselves over to bitterness. Bitterness can be defined as anger and disappointment at being unfairly, treated unfairly, or simply as the feeling of resentment that ultimately results in a grudge. And this bitterness that develops into grudges typically develops as a result of one of three things. It develops as a result of injury. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau, Genesis chapter 27? Jacob deceived his father Isaac into giving him the blessing. And after discovering that Jacob stole his blessing, Esau, we're told, cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. He was so embittered by Jacob's actions that according to Genesis chapter 27 and verse 41, he hated Jacob. Another translation says that Esau bore a grudge against Jacob. In fact, Esau planned to kill Jacob after his father passed away, and that was the impetus for Jacob's journey to Laban. Jacob wronged Esau, Jacob injured Esau, and that wound became the source of bitterness for Esau. Some of you know what that's like. In some facet of your life, You've been hurt by somebody else. You've been injured by somebody else. You've been wounded by somebody else. We're not talking physical. We're talking emotional, relational, mental. You know what that's like. And that can become the seed for bitterness. But bitterness may also develop as a result of disappointment. Sometimes we have preconceived notions of how things should go, how things should be. And when those expectations aren't met, we become bitter. That was the case for Jonah. In Jonah chapter 4 and verse 1, we learn that Jonah was displeased, exceedingly displeased, and he was angry. Why? Well, because back in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to Nineveh, and he did not do it. Jonah wanted that disaster to come on Nineveh. He did not want salvation to come to those enemies of Israel. He was too patriotic to prioritize the spiritual. In fact, he was so bitter that God saved the Ninevites that he asked God to take his life in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 3. Jonah didn't want to assist on God's mission because he didn't want Nineveh to be spared. And when his desire for that nation failed to come to fruition, he was so bitter that he didn't want to live anymore. See, we can let our disappointments become the source of a bitterness that festers, that hurts that handicaps our life, even when it has no real bearing on our future. But we can also become bitter as a result of jealousy. In the parable of the prodigal son, the focus of the first half of the parable is on the youngest son who prematurely receives his portion of the inheritance so he can live it up while he's still young. 
and then he has to return home when he runs out of money. But the second half of the parable is focused on the eldest son who never left home, who was responsible, who stayed with dad all those years, and who, upon learning that his younger brother had returned home, was angry and refused to participate in the celebration of his return. The father comes outside and pleads with the eldest son to join the festivities, but the eldest son said this in verses 29 and 30 of Luke chapter 15. He said, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. That eldest brother was bitter because the son who wronged his father was getting treated better than he had ever been treated despite his consistent obedience. He believed that he was more deserving of a celebration than his younger brother, and it's all because he is jealous. He's envious of the attention his brother is getting, and it's caused him to be bitter. Bitterness can result from any of these sources and others. And the thing you really need to know about bitterness, whatever form it takes, whatever source it derives from, the thing you really know about, need to know about bitterness is that all forms of bitterness are condemned in the Bible. Job indicated that resentment is a behavior of the fool in Job chapter 5 and verse 2, as well as a behavior of the godless in Job chapter 36 and verse 13. Resentment has no place among the people who are going to associate with God. That's the point that Job makes. And if anyone had a reason to be bitter, it would have been him. Under Mosaic law, grudges are expressly forbidden, according to Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, which says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You might recognize the second half of that verse. That is exactly where Jesus took the second part of the greatest command from, a passage that is anti-holding grudges. Not only that, we can journey into the New Testament. And you can see the, the command in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, to love our enemies, which would include the ones that have wounded us in the past, who have hurt us and harmed us in the past. And then you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where love is said to, to not be irritable or resentful in verse 5. Another translation says it this way, love keeps no record of wrong. Such love-oriented instructions are opposed to and condemning of a bitter attitude. And so my point is, all throughout the Bible, you're going to find statements and you're going to find instructions and you're going to find expectations that contradict the presence of bitterness in our lives. We are instructed to get rid of all bitterness, all grudges, all resentments, all forms of such hate. And in order to let go of our grudges, we're going to have to turn our wounds over to God. We're not just turning our wrongs over to God to get rid of our guilt. But to let go of your grudges, you also have to turn over your wounds. 
And nowhere is this more clear than in the story of Naomi. If you go back to the book of Ruth, you go to the first chapter, you'll be introduced to Naomi. You'll be introduced to her and her husband, Elimelech. And Elimelech had made the decision to relocate his family out of Judah and into Moab because the land of Israel was enduring a famine. And while in Moab, Elimelech and his two sons died, that made Naomi a destitute widow in a foreign land. She ended up making a difficult decision to return back to the land of Israel, return home to the city of Bethlehem. But she does not return happily. She returns begrudgingly. When she arrives in Bethlehem, She changes her name. The name Naomi means pleasant. But she requested that the people start calling her Mara, which means bitter. And she freely admitted that due to the loss of her husbands and sons, she harbored bitterness. In fact, she attributed her bitter state to God. She said in Ruth chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. You have this woman who has lost so much and now her life is bitter and so she wants people to call her bitter. She wants that to be her name. But at the same time, she's made a decision to return home. See, God had told the Israelites, hey, if a famine comes on the land, don't leave. Trust me. Elimelech didn't obey that. So Naomi's decision to return home ultimately was a decision to reverse a wrong decision. It was, in a sense, an act of repentance, of turning around and going back to where they ought to be. And her return home was not easy, but it was necessary in order for her to heal, even if she didn't realize it. And God takes her bitter story and makes it incredibly sweet. By the end of that book, if you turn over to Ruth chapter 4, we're told that then Naomi took the child, a child born to her daughter-in-law and her daughter-in-law's new husband, took that child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. See, we don't, we don't remember her as Mara. We don't remember her by her bitter name. We remember her as Naomi by her pleasant name because God made her story sweet again. The lesson to be learned from Naomi's decision to return home is that the only way we can overcome the baggage of bitterness is if we turn it over to God. He alone can rewrite the story so as to give a bitter story a sweet ending. I think that's the point Paul was making in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 when he said, 
we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The verse doesn't say everything in life is going to be good. What it says is that God can take any story, any situation, any circumstance, and make good come from it, regardless of how difficult or bitter it is. And so we need to turn our wounds over to God. We need to let go of our grudges because of what God can do with them. I'm reminded of a conversation I read about that former President Ronald Reagan had with an Air Force One pilot on one occasion. The president asked the pilot, why do you always try to land so close to the start of the runway? And the pilot said, Mr. President, all pilots know that the runway behind you is of no value. The runway behind you is of no value. I think that's why Paul wrote Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, which we read at the start of this sermon. Not that I've already obtained this or already imperfect. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. One thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what lies behind behind. That's the language of letting go. That includes his faults and his failures, as well as his wounds and his wrongs. The guilt and the grudges. They didn't matter anymore because there was something greater to press toward. And Paul goes on to instruct those who are mature to think the same way, to let it go. I'm certain there's some people here today that need to let some things go. I'm certain that there are many of us who hold on to things that we don't need to hold on to anymore, and we need to let God take care of our wrongs and take care of our wounds. I think all of us I think all of us can heed the words of Elsa. Had to go there. And never go back to our guilt and our grudges, but let the past be in the past. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. If that's a decision you need to make today, whether it's because of your wrongs or because of your wounds, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.
Thank you, Colin. Be seated, please. Our closing hymn this morning will be hymn 707 to Christ be loyal and true. Sing the first, third, and fourth stanza. We appreciate each one of you being here this morning, those who are online as well. We ask you to use your QR code to register your attendance. We invite you to come back tonight at 7 o'clock, rather 6 o'clock for our evening service. After our closing prayer, we ask you to stay seated as Todd will have an announcement for us. To Christ be loyal and true. To Christ be loyal and be true, this banner be unfurled, and born up till it's secure by conquest of the world. To Father in heaven, thank you so much for letting us be here this morning, be here to uh, be encouraged and to encourage each other, to build up and to be built up. We pray that as we go into this new week that we can rearrange our priorities to remember what we have heard from today, that we can let go of our guilt, that we can let go of our grudges, that we can be freed up to give glory to you. In your Son, who makes this and all things possible. Amen.